Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week on the podcast, my guest is Dylan Jones, the award-winning journalist and author who served as editor of GQ for 22 years before stepping down this summer. As chairman of the British Fashion Council for Menswear, he spearheaded the launch of London's first Men's Fashion Week, and in 2013, he was awarded an OBE for services to publishing and the fashion industry. I've enjoyed reading Dylan's interviews with Paul Weller plenty of times over the years, and as you'd expect, he's a massive jam, style council, and Paul Weller fan. So you're going to love this one, I promise. Let's get into it. Dylan Jones, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Good to be here. This is lovely because you are the only other person on the planet that has had a podcast series specifically about Paul Weller. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just you and me, my friend. Just you and me. (laughs) Very good. We're both in very good company. Let's kick things off. This is obviously the Paul Weller fan podcast, and I know that you're a huge big fan, and we'll get into some of the work that you've done with Paul, the interviews, the conversations and stuff in a bit too. But um, when was it you, you first fell in love with the music of Paul Weller? Well, I first saw the jam. I'm fairly so I've got very good recall, very good recall about lots of things. Other things are a bit fuzzy, but I'm fairly certain I first saw the jam. I think it was in early 77. I think it was probably at the Nags Head in High Wycombe. I lived in and around there in various different places. And I used to go to the Nags Head a lot. And I used to go, I probably first started going when I was about 14, 15. And you see a lot of the pub rock bands like Alberto, Y.A. Lost, Trios, Paranoias, Curzel Flyers, Eggs Over Easy, Dr. Feel Good. Dr. Feel Good was a, a real kind of moment 
that was extraordinary. And then I would have seen the jam. I don't think it was 70 things. So I think it was February 77. And because the Nags head was run by Ron Watts, who also used to run the 100 Club. So whoever played at the 100 Club would uh, invariably end up playing the Nags head or, or vice versa. That would have been the first time. And then of all the people I saw, and I saw a lot of punk gigs, I saw everybody apart from the pistols i saw literally everybody and i think i saw the jam more than any other band which meant the group that i probably saw more than anyone else was the new hearts who were this dreadful band who run by ian page who turned into secret affair they probably weren't dreadful at all but compared to the jam they were and they seemed to be supporting everybody particularly the jam and so i must have seen them a dozen times maybe more i can't remember but anyway yeah that that's almost certainly the first time that i that i saw the jam and what was it about their music and, the, and that live performance that connected with you? Well, on the one hand, it was the fact that punk was happening anyway. Um, I was the right age. I was 17, 16, 17. So as much as I still loved lots of other types of music in terms of energy and having that live experience, that was something that couldn't really be replicated. And at the time, I still had fairly long hair. I'd still go to big concerts by the likes of Pink Floyd and Todd Ronger and people like that. I was obsessive about going to all these punk gigs, usually by myself, actually. And I go up to London by myself and I go to the Nags Head by myself. And because lots of my friends were sort of on the fence, some of them thought it was terrible, some of them liked it. And I was still at that age where I was exploring music. And I thought that just because I love punk, I'm not going to suddenly ditch everything else because I was discovering lots of other worlds. And I love that. And I still do that now. There's a lot of hypocrisy, as you know, in uh, our appreciation of music. And even though I occasionally fell into it myself or subscribed to it, I didn't really because there were lots of the old, there there was a lot of the old music that you weren't allowed to like anymore that I still liked. I remember when I moved to London in August 77, I, I moved to the... Ralph West Halls of Residence, which is in Albert Bridge Road, opposite Battersea Park. And it's where you went. If you'd moved to London and you were going to one of the the five major art schools, if you're going to St. Martin's or Chelsea or Central or Camberwell or LCP as well, London College of Printing. And it was a fantastic place to be. In the summer of 77, 800 yards from the King's Road. It was just amazing. It's the most amazing time of my life. And I loved it. Uh, I was there for about 18 months. And if you walked along the corridors in the Ralph West Halls of Residence, it was like a radio because you'd walk along and there'd be the MC5 coming out of one doorway. There'd be Genesis coming out of the other. There'd be Eagles out of the other. There'd be the jam <laughs> here, et cetera, et cetera. It was brilliant. And I kind of liked that. And I've always liked that. And one of the things I didn't like about punk was the fact that it was so prescriptive that you had to only like a particular kind of thing. You had to dress in a particular kind of way. All of that nonsense I kind of hated because I never liked being a part of a tribe. And I was never one of those people who would go down the King's Road on a Saturday afternoon in a gang looking for trouble. I'd walk down the King's Road on a Saturday afternoon, but I deliberately stayed out of all of that because I just thought it was silly. The jam moved very quickly moved away from that punk sound, I suppose, from into new wave and and their sound develops very quickly. And and that's that was driven obviously by Paul as a songwriter as much as the sound of the Bruce and Rick as well. But you went along with them with that ride as well, clearly. I did. But if you cast your mind back at the time, the music papers were full of all these acts because they sold. But I don't remember reading any interview with anyone, whether it was the Pistols or X-Ray Specs or the Jam or the Clash or Buzzcocks or anybody who admitted being a punk. They thought the whole sort of punk umbrella was awful and everyone was about being an individual. And it was actually the second 
dream, the sort of second generation of punk groups, late 77, 78, who were punk groups. And they were very proud of the fact that they were a punk group. But most of the people who were in it at the beginning didn't really like being under under that umbrella. And I don't think Paul did, actually. I don't think that... Um, in fact, I remember, you know, there was that misguided and much publicised infamous interview where he said that they supported the Tories. But they were quite separate from the sort of orthodox punk triumvirate, if you like. A lot of the, the early punks were quite dismissive of the jam. And there was a kind of war of attrition, I think, between both the groups and their followers and the jam and their followers. So... Right from the beginning, I, I think that they were particular and they were separate. And it was no surprise that they wanted to move on quite quickly. And take us through what it was like to be in, in a jam gig then. What was the live performance like? How, uh, can you remember how many you went to, roughly? Probably a dozen. A lot. I seem to remember going to the Red Cow a lot and seeing the jam. I, I don't know. I mean, that there are periods in my life that are so blurry. It's like going to nightclubs in the early 80s. You kind of remember being there and you kind of remember what you did, but specifics and where you actually were, they get blurred. But I saw them a lot. But again, I have to say that, yes, I loved the jam and I loved going to their concerts, but it was fundamentally because they were in small environments. They, they were clubs. And when the jam started becoming much more popular i perhaps saw them at, i don't know i may have seen them at the lyceum or the electric ballroom or hammersmith odeon i can't really remember i think i saw them at, at the odeon but when they started to get bigger than that i lost interest and i think that was a time of my life where you're constantly interested in what's new and even though i still love the records i didn't really have any interest in going to the empire pool to see somebody mm. and also the fan base got a lot younger and got more aggressive i mean i remember going to see the smiths in 86 maybe brixton academy it was like going to the wrong football match because it was just it was a bunch of oiks basically <laughs> ironically it was like going to an england game rather than a club game because i love football and, and i love going to to watch football, but England games, they attract a particular kind of supporter mm. occasionally. Yeah. And big gigs were like that. And I, I never liked that. I never liked the hoodlum as aspect of it. Never got it, hated it. Again, talking about those early punk gigs, they were incredibly violent and incredibly aggressive, but actually kind of didn't matter in that environment because it was new and it was small. There was always broken glass. I remember being at the 100 Club once seeing Adam and the Ant and literally a, a, a pint mug going past my ear on, on its way to someone's poor unfortunate's head. And it was intoxicating and it was exciting and everyone was on speed, so you were nervous all, all the time. But it was kind of contextualised and small. When it got bigger, it's like football hooliganism. It just didn't, it wasn't appealing to me. So I think that just by dint of getting bigger, your fan base changes and that never particularly appealed to me. You weren't one of those that were devastated when the jam split them? No, it made complete sense to me. And actually, they could have done it for me personally. They could have done it a lot earlier because I could see that in terms of the optics around the band, you could tell that Weller was frustrated. You could tell that his aspirations and what he was doing was in a limited form. I mean, my favourite jam album is Sound Effects. And for me, they could have kind of like stopped there and moved on. So no, I, I thought it was a smart move. As a sort of budding journalist, I could understand the enormity of the proposition and the decision, but I wasn't crying about it at all. No. Mm. The 80s is clearly a big passion for you as a writer. You've written a few times about that as a decade and, and the new book, Shiny and New, 10 Moments of Pop Genius that Defined the 1980s. We've had Sweet Dreams where you looked at the story of new romantics and the club culture and style culture. And we'll talk about fashion in, in a sec as well. The style Council, obviously a big band in that time as well, amongst 
others, Culture Club, Wham, Soft Cell, Duran Duran, etc. Where does the Style Council stand up for you? Was that something that, that floated your boat? Style Council, I'm with Bob Elms on this. The Style Council were better than the jam. Deal with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I loved them. I loved everything about them. I thought that the music was great. I thought they were funny. I thought they were ironic. They were cool. It was another opportunity for him to be kind of dismissive of the industry, which again, I enjoyed. They were great. The thing I liked about them was that they were in their own little way. I don't mean that in a patronizing way, but in, in their own way, they were completely dismissive of the world that they were in. It's like, well, we're going to do this. We're going to start an album with an instrumental. We're going to dress up and go boating and we're going to do it. It's just, it was playful and the image was good, but also fundamentally, it always comes back to one thing, which is content. And the songs were great. And it was a real joy to see him writing in different idioms, in different genres, and just growing as a songwriter. And I thought that was great. They were terrific. I saw them a couple of times. Uh, I saw them on various TV shows because I knew various people who were doing TV shows at the time. And they were always, they were always terrific. They were a joy to watch. And uh, I still play those records. They're great. I mean, I still play jam records, but probably less so. I think I probably play Star Council records more often. In fact, Confessions of Pop Group. I love that. The whole swingle singer thing. I mean, that's very me. I love that kind of music anyway. But um, you have extraordinary music and mellifluous vocals and quite sort of rhapsodic instrumentation, very orchestral. And then you'd have these very kind of strident lyrics, um, which I always thought was a, a great sort of juxtaposition. There's another book of yours that I've not touched on, which was The 80s, One Day, One Decade. And the reason I was reminded of this as well was because we've just had, at the time of recording, we've just had the 36th anniversary of Live Aid. This is all about Live Aid in 1985, Saturday 13th of July, 1985. And I remember being out the front playing, I'd have been 10, breakdancing on my lino in the front of the house, my mum running out, bringing me, you know, telling me to come in to watch the telly because the latest act was coming on or whatever. This, this idea that nearly a third of humanity knew whether they they were going to be that day watching, listening to, attending Live Aid is how the book's um, set up. And the Style Council was second act on, but a, an incredible event to, to witness and, and to write about, I would imagine. Yeah, it was great being there. It never occurred to me to write about it. And then I was talking with an, an editor one day and we were talking about, uh, there was an anniversary coming up and we kind of discussed it. And then as I got into it, I didn't want, just want to write a book about the event or the groups or the record or the charity. I wanted to write about the decade. So I wrote about the decade through the event. But one of the salient things about that event, uh, it's acknowledged now, is that, and I felt this at the time as a consumer, as well as a journalist, is that the people who benefited from the British Live Aid concert were the so-called legacy performers those performers who were probably only in their 30s and 40s at the time, because all the new bands were at the front. You had Spandau, you had Sade, Style Council, Adam and the Ants, the Rats maybe, a few others. And actually, I didn't, I didn't think they suited the environment. I, mean, I think those acts were acts that were suited to smaller environments. And actually, as the day went on and the sun, sun came down, and you had rather more dramatic lighting. It was the so-called legacy artists, or who would become legacy artists, like The Who, like Queen, like U2, even though U2 are relatively recent arrivals, McCartney, etc., Bowie. They were the ones who benefited. And, and, and after that, there was a surge, a sort of reacquaintance, a sort of global reacquaintance with acts like that. And everybody wanted to play Stadia. I remember that 
the years afterwards. Madonna would play Wembley, terrible. Michael Jackson would play Wembley, terrible. The only one who actually did it successfully was Prince, but he played in the round at Wem- Wembley Arena, which was terrific. And the Star Council, I mean, yeah, what an amazing thing to be at, but I don't think they gave a great account of themselves. They, they, they were fine, but I think it was the environment. Plus, it's very early in the day with our very unflattering flat, flat lighting, uh, a crowd that wasn't yet kind of in the groove. I mean, I went to that concert and I'd never really liked Queen. I, they just didn't do it for me. I didn't understand Queen. I thought they were old-fashioned and a bit silly. But like everyone, that performance, the Queen performance, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Quintessential stadium experience. In fact, when my daughters, I took my daughters, or one of my daughters, to see the, was it called Bohemian Rhapsody, the, the Queen biopic? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they said they really enjoyed the Live Aid big. I said, go on YouTube and watch it. You'll be amazed. It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Conversely, I remember at one point we were so far, and there was one point we went to get something to eat. We were so far away from the stage that when you 2 came on, my girlfriend thought they were playing in Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) True story. Um, It was a great day, but in terms of what we're talking about, I think it was great to be at, but I don't think it was an extraordinary performance by the Style Council, honestly. One thing you could say about them on that performance, and um, pretty much all of them, to be fair, um, is they look pretty sharp. The white Levi's and all that, they look pretty sharp. Fashion has played such a big part in your life as, as a journalist and writer, and I know it's a huge, big passion point. That's something you share with Paul Weller, clearly. Um, I mean, he's always somebody who's, who's well-dressed, but also somebody who, as whenever he launches his own range or recommends something, it immediately sells out. What is that love of fashion for you? And presumably you've talked with Paul about that quite a bit, I would imagine. Trust me. When you're in a room with Paul Weller, you're not the best dressed person in the room. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, he takes it to obsessional heights and it's kind of extraordinary. And I take my hat off to him. He really cares. It's genuine. Uh, there's another friend of mine who's also an ex-mod. I say ex. I mean, he's a mod, but he's 60. And he's as obsessive as, as Paul is. It's something to behold. And I think it's really impressive. I think it's great. Lots of people still don't understand it. Journalists didn't really understand it in the 80s. They thought it was an affectation. But it's a real thing. And I think that, um, yeah, he is a he is a well-dressed man. I remember him talking to GQ magazine. And I looked this up before this, Talking Fashion, 2011. This was around the Pretty Green launch. I don't know if you remember this. So it was yeah. at a time, back in the day when Pretty Green was not owned by Sports Direct. And <laughs> he launched this capsule collection, it was called. And I remember buying the lot, you know, <laughs> buy, buying it all. And then realizing I looked absolutely ridiculous because I'm not Paul Weller. But there's this lovely quote where he said, um, I think the question was, did he ever want anything from his dad's wardrobe? And he said, did I ever want anything from my dad's wardrobe? Only his copies of Playboy. <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> it's something you've yeah. talked you talk to him about in terms of his, his love of fashion. Yeah, and then he starts talking about something with such an attention to detail and he talk about the my, minutiae of a, a shoe or something or the stitching and something. And I'm like, whoa, that's even too much information for me i love it i find it fascinating but it's uh yeah it's a real obsession but i like people who have obsessions when was it you first met paul can you remember properly i mean i bumped into him at lots of things nothing that he would remember in fact when we kind of got to know each other a little bit better um i started telling him about you know when i used to interview i said i first interviewed him for the face and it was 87 it was when confessions of a pop group came out and it's when they had solid bond uh, which is about 200 yards from where I live now. I live at Marble Arch. And I said, you were so bloody difficult. You really were. 
You were really, you were git, absolute git, because he didn't want to be interviewed. Mick didn't want to be interviewed. I remember going back and I walked back to the face office, which is in Ossington Buildings, which is about probably a 15, 20 minute walk. And Nick Logan saying, how was it? I said, it was difficult. It was difficult. And he said, well, you can make it shorter if you want to. I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to write this because it's, um, and the thing is, I loved the record. I loved the whole idea of the record. I loved the Star Council. And I had a respect for, for Paul and Mick, who I didn't really know and, and still don't. But yeah, it was, I, it was quite a generic piece in the end because, you know, how many journalists have been to interview Paul Weller, Van Morrison or Lou Reed and come back and say, fuck, he's difficult. But you know, that's fine. <laughs> I, I, I know why he was. I, I respect him for it. But yeah, I have a wry smile when I think about that interview. But definitely you can feel that he's more comfortable about, and within himself, but certainly with interviewers and having those kind of conversations now. Um, we'll touch on the podcast that you did last year and the um, the more recent conversations um, with Mary McCartney in a sec as well. Um, but I want to take you back to, well, talk about GQ for a sec. So you've been editor since 1999. You're leaving very soon with it in good health. And I have to say, I love a magazine. You can't beat that thing of something coming through the post as a subscription or buying something in the in the news agents and having that physical thing in your hands and flicking through there's there's that real power of print isn't there uh well i think so but then i'm over 30 and so are you yeah um, true, true. and i think that i don't think people should obsess about the fortunes of print and the relative demise of print i don't think that's particularly important i think what is important is to protect editorial to protect content and it is possible. And print, in some respects, is dying. And in some, in other respects, it isn't. If you look at what Mark Thompson has done at the New York Times, you look at the great success that the New Yorkers had with subscription model, uh, you look at The Economist, you look at the FT, you look at The Telegraph, you look at The Times, you look at The Sunday Times. Actually, if you look at the way that The, the Guardian has been supported by its kind of begging bowl policy, I mean, it's um, people will pay for good content, for news, for, for quality journalism. Uh, and I think we are entering a, a world where there is a reappreciation of expertise, and I think people will pay for quality writing, and I don't think that's going away. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, when you, as part of GQ, Paul's featured many times from cover. I think looking back, I think back even back to like '97 around Heavy Soul, he was featured from that point, um, which I was just before your time. But 2018, he was awarded the Songwriter of the Year at your Men of the Year Awards. I don't know if you remember that night. Uh, of course, I remember. I, I, I remember all of them. We used to go in the early days when we launched it. We used to go through this sort of process of sort of suggesting things to the readers. And in the end, I just said, look, we're choosing them. We are arbiters, okay? If we're doing this job, we're setting ourselves up as arbiters anyway. And I'm very comfortable with deciding halfway through the year who we're going to celebrate because people have good years, people have mediocre years. And I've been trying to get Paul to the Men of the Year Awards forever, for 20 years. There were some people I really wanted there. The three people I really wanted there were David Bowie, Van Morrison, and Paul. And in the end, I ended up getting all of them. Bowie came, I think, in 2002 or 2003, when we were at the Natural History Museum. Van eventually came about nine or 10 years ago when we were at the Opera House and was a joy from beginning to end. And Paul, as you say, came to the Tate Modern in 2018. I went to pitch to him. I said, look, you don't need this. You probably don't want a night out. But this is what's happened before. These are the people we celebrated. We celebrated everybody, all the good people. We want to celebrate you because we love you. And we think that you should be celebrated for your 
songwriting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think he entered into it with some reluctance, but I think he enjoyed himself. And we made it as flattering and as easy for him as possible. And I said to him, what I say to everyone is that I want you, when you're going home in your car, I want you to be able to turn to your wife, partner, girlfriend, mistress, drug dealer, um, <laughs> uh, stylist, publicist, whoever, and say, you know what? I'm glad we did that. And I think he enjoyed himself. But yeah, it was a mission to get him there. Uh, he was great. People loved having him in the room. I mean, you can judge. You walk around the Men of the Year Awards and there'd be over 100 really, 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 really famous people there every year. And I'm talking A-listers, big people. And people are walking around going, that's Paul Weller. That's Paul Weller. Fuck, that's Paul Weller. <laughs> Says it all. And it was. It was Paul Weller. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely was Paul Weller. And that was a true meanings point, was the, was the latest album at that moment. And it's amazing now to think what we've had since, you know, supported by lockdown in a way, giving us the extra album of Fat Pop Volume 1. But what did you make of, the, of that trio in terms of true meanings on Sunset and then Fat Pop? I'm a fan, obviously, but they, yeah, they, they are near masterpieces, all of them. And I think that he's... Obviously, in a, having a purple patch at the moment, and I think it's a combination of many things. I think it's a combination of unbelievable focus. I think it's a feeling, a sense, perhaps that there are only going to be so many Paul Weller records left, and why not make everyone Sergeant Pepper? But the thing that you can't legislate before, and the thing which is perhaps surprising, is the fact that he's not only as good a songwriter as he's ever been, but he might actually be better now than he was. 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. That does not often happen. I mean, Neil Tennant is all, all is very good at all at saying that musicians, pop stars, entertainers, they have a kind of an imperial period and it often lasts about seven years. And it doesn't matter how good you were, you're probably not knocking it out of the park in the way that you used to. I mean, I love Ray Davis. We all love Ray Davis, huge talent. Has he made a record that we've loved in the last 10 years? I don't think so. Talent occasionally runs out and it changes and it morphs and you come back and you don't come back. And very rare for an artist, as you know, to have that continued sort of to punch at a consistent height or level or pitch or intensity for that long. And not all Paul's records have been amazing. Some of them have been less good than others. But as you say, he's in a period at the moment where the Midas touch at the moment, everything he touches, everything he creates is, is good. And that's a nice thing. It's also a nice thing because it's nice to be able to say that's great rather than sort of massaging the stars and sort of give it an extra star because we like him. You know, yeah. you don't have to because they're all five stars. And I touched on the, the beginning of this podcast, um, the, the conversation you had with Paul Four on Sunset, which became this three-part podcast series from official channels um, as opposed to this one. When you were talking about the album, that definitely comes through that he feels that, that this is his moment in terms of that purple patch you talk about, but that is really on fire and, and he's not entirely sure where it's coming from, but he's, he's so comfortable that these songs are just Kind of everything just seems to be working and flowing from him. That, that definitely came through in the conversation you had. Good. I think that he's, um, and as you say, I think he's slightly more comfortable talking about that sort of side of him, the sort of creative spark. However, I don't um, blame anyone for not particularly enjoying promo or not wanting to do promo. In a very small way, I've had to do a lot of that stuff myself. And um, do you look forward to it? Most of the time you don't, know. I mean, it's, 
it's just stuff. It's just stuff you've got to do to plug whatever you're doing. And, and it's nice to be able to talk to someone, whether you're being interviewed or you are interviewing someone else, where there is a, um, a genuine interest in having a conversation because conversations are always more interesting than just Q&A. But I don't think that's particular to me. I think that he's, he's, he's in a period where he is probably more interested or more prepared to talk to journalists and writers than he has been before. Plus, a lot of it is to do, I mean, people say about Van Morrison that there are two types of people, people who like Van Morrison and people who have met him. And it's a funny line, but it's not actually true. <laughs> and what Van doesn't like is people who don't know anything about his work or ask the, the same old questions. And he's like, why am I going to sit down for an hour with someone I've never met before i'm never going to meet meet again he's probably going to write something 15 percent of it i'm not going to like it's like he doesn't have to do that he found morrison there was this lovely piece in gq in june which i'd love to know how this came about where you put paul with mary mccartney and they talked about so many things about lockdown and fame and booze from paul's point of view and giving it up and it was a very reflective piece and the beatles obviously came up and stuff how did that idea came about of you putting the two of them together to have that conversation you talk about conversation that definitely came through in the article it wasn't a q a in that way it was a genuine them asking each other things and, and fleshing out things from each other how did it coming it came about very simply because paul had a new record out it was good and i couldn't i mean much as i love paul and much as i love talking to him i thought he's not going to want to talk to me again i've interviewed him about six times in the last six years it's like more probably and also i don't think the reader wants me to wang on about how much i like paul weller again let's try and do something different and so we thought why don't we put him together with mary because we i think paul had asked when we gave him the award at the Men of the Year Awards in 2018. We, we always ask, which person would you like to give you the award? And sometimes they say Barack Obama, which is challenging, but you endeavour <laughs> to get Barack Obama or whoever. And he, he said Mary. And uh, I know Mar- Mary re- relatively well, and ne- neither of them are, are, are falling over themselves to do stuff like this because they're quite private people. But Mary did it as a favour to, to Paul. We thought, well, that could be kind of an interesting idea wouldn't it and then i suggested it to paul paul liked the idea and so we endeavored to make it work although obviously they're sitting down for two minutes instead of mary asking him lots of questions he's just asking a lot of lots of questions about the beatles yeah <laughs> which actually only paul could get away with. it turned out to be a lovely natural conversation and it was a, it was a lovely couple of hours and we just stayed out of it and just captured it on film on audio and everything it, it was it was great it was a very nice afternoon and it turned into a really good piece as well yeah no it's really nice i have to say hey i've got a couple of more things to just quickly chat about one really we should talk properly about the new book shiny and new 10 moments of pop genius that define the 1980s because whilst paul well and the style council aren't in there the 80s is a big passion point for you because that, that comes through but there are some real key periods that you dig into which is which is really interesting i think i'm not actually allowed to write books about any other subject other than the 80s. I think that um, if I suggested to my agent that I want you to write a book about something else, he might um, raise an eyebrow, a quizzical eyebrow. Having said that, I've just finished a book on the 90s, which will be out next spring. Oh, but, um, wow, cool. I wanted to do a follow-up to Sweet Dreams, and I want to try and redeem the rest of the 80s. I, I think that it, the 80s is still a decade which people are patronising about. They're quite reductive about the 80s, and they still kind of treat it as though it's somehow 
less significant than the, than the decades that surround it. And I don't think that's true. And so I wanted to resurrect some of those great records and talk about the way that the 80s, in, in my mind, is as kaleidoscopic as the 60s, because so many different things happened in, in the 80s. So many different forms of music happened in the 80s. Also, I think it's the first decade that wasn't linear. I think up until the 80s, pop music was linear. One thing tended to follow another. And even though you had this big explosion in the 60s, a lot of the music came out of it was very, very similar, even though there was a lot of talent that blossomed in the 60s. But in the 80s, driven principally by technology, you had this sort of kaleidoscopic amount of different types of music. And I think it's when music became atomized. There was something for everyone. There were lots of little mini genres. Plus, it was a very vibrant period for protest songs. People don't think of the 80s as being a, a decade of protest songs. The 80s is responsible for the most commercially successful protest song of all time, which was Do They Know It's Christmas, the Band-Aid record. Plus you had Ghost Town. Plus you had Free Nelson Mandela. Plus you had Prince writing Sign of the Times. You had all these extraordinary records which were writing about the ills of society and societal changes, and they were very important. So I talk about rap. I start the book with Rapper's Delight. I end with Fight the Power. But I talk about the theme from S Express, talking about Acid House, Prince, of the Times, Indie with the Smiths, The Look of Love, Ghost Town, Blue Monday, an extraordinary record. It's almost like a genre in itself. And then I talk about the way that technology afforded huge fame to the likes of Madonna, Prince, Bruce Springsteen, etc., etc. So yeah, it's, a, it's another book that try and reclaims the 80s. It's so weird to think that you know, when we look at, you know, sat here in 2021, looking back at the 80s now, 30 plus years ago, that in the 80s, if you were looking back, you'd have been talking about the 1950s. To me, the 1980s feels like yesterday. It's so bizarre how time flies so quickly. I mean, the, the pop stars of the time were huge, weren't they? When you talk about people like Madonna and Prince and uh, Michael Jackson, and I know you weren't a big fan of the stadium gig like you mentioned, but I remember going to the Bad Tour at Wembley and, and Jackson, and I mean, they were colossal, how how huge those were as pop megastars, weren't they? Pop stars were different in the 80s, and it was the first time that they really became global. Yeah, you had the Beatles and the Stones, but, but apart from that beforehand, you didn't have bands and acts and performers who were globally successful in the way that they were in the 80s, principally due to television and MTV and the way that media had, had exploded. So it's a combination of media and technology afforded these people huge, huge platforms. Also, I think that you look at pop now, and I think it's always very dangerous for any person to say, well, pop music was better in my day, because it just plainly isn't true. And if you're 15 now, the music you're consuming now is... That's your best music in the world. However, I think there are fewer pop stars now. A lot of music has become very generic. It's impossible to sign. I mean, uh, record companies don't sign rock acts anymore because they don't stream. It's hip hop or it's pop or it's modern R&B. And most pop records now are dance records anyway. So in some respects, music has become more generic. It might be more exciting. And, and if a 15-year-old tells me so, they have to be right by dint of their age. But also the other thing about the 80s is that those decades, they live forever. And because of the way we consume music now, that if you like the 80s, the 80s are there in a kind of parallel universe, like the 60s or 70s. Like when, I love going to um, America. You get out the airport, you get into your car, and you can just press, you know, you just go along the dial, just like 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. 
etc., etc., etc. And that's your world, and it's a completely legitimate world, and it's completely legitimate to exist in that world, which is which is funny. So you can access the eighties anytime you want to. The eighties are never going to leave us; they're always there. Yeah, yeah, you only need to look at the massive success of stations like you know Absolute Radio eighties, Heart eighties, which came off the back of that yep. as well in competition. They, yep. they get huge listener numbers. People love that music, love that time, don't they? Dylan, this has been so lovely yeah. to spend time with you. Thank you so much. I've got a couple of questions before you go. First one: You're allowed one Paul yep. Weller song for the rest of your life. It could be the Jam, the Star Council, or Solo. Which one are you going to go with? It has to be Butterfly Collector. Oh, nice choice. The Jam B-side or the Days of Speed solo? <laughs> jam B-side. I played it to death. In, in, you know, when you're younger, you, you, you tend to play... I remember years ago getting onto this subject, and Ooh La La by The Faces is one of my favourite records, right? It's not a very good record. It just isn't. But when I was 13... I played that record to death. And in those days, you played something until you liked it. Yeah. Uh, and for me, it's up there with Ziggy Stardust or Dark Side of the Moon or Sergeant Pepper. It's an amazing record. It probably isn't that good, but in my mind it is. But um, Butterfly Collector is actually a very good song. It is a great performance. And it's also very evocative of that period. So, yeah, that, that would be the answer to that question. Great choice, great choice. It's funny because I've just started getting back into vinyl again, having got rid of all my vinyl for CD because I was told that was the future, and then getting rid of CD for the world of MP3 because I thought it was clutter. Getting back into vinyl. But one thing I have realised with vinyl is it's very inconvenient. <laughs> there's a lot. Of no. getting up, there's a lot of getting up and flipping things over. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I've just bought a new system. I've got a whole new system, and I've actually enjoyed the whole process of putting. But you're right. You put a record on, and you, and you go and have you eat, and say, well, "Hold on, it's just stopped." <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah. you use the music just going on forever. It's like, that was only 15, 16 minutes. Oh, but it's fine. It's fine. Enjoy vinyl. Final question. Purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to lovely people like yourself, and I do appreciate it, but thank you. Uh, but it's to get that interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, when it happens, what should I talk to him about? Is there a killer question or a topic you think I should cover with him? Uh, I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Route one is always the current project because whatever you're doing currently presently right now that's the thing people want to talk about you can go off anywhere if you're smart enough but yeah just talk about the what anyone's doing now because that's what that's what people care about more than anything else lovely um, i'm looking forward to um the book about the 90s next year oh, will paul weller feature in that couldn't possibly say <laughs> dylan good luck for the future my friend thank you so much for joining me thank you very much indeed have a great day my thanks once again to dylan jones obe no less for joining me on the podcast this week you can find links in the show notes to his own paul weller three-part podcast that was released for the album on sunset along with details of his new book shiny and new 10 moments of pop genius that defined the 80s now coming soon on the podcast i'll be joined by some super fans known as the jam tarts the incredible musician declan o'rourke is going to be on we got broadcaster john wilson coming up author david Lyons, and mr jam john abnett to name a few of my very special guests make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcast that's amazon that's apple that's spotify and so many more places you can leave a review please do it helps us to find new listeners and make sure you share this episode of the podcast on your social media channels on facebook on twitter on instagram anywhere else you like you can also buy me a coffee and find information about my guests in the show notes for this podcast Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 